Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're listening to Out of Odds, a podcast from Building 28 Church. Welcome back to Out of Oz, a Building 28 church podcast where we confront not only fallacies, but also the fantasies of modern day Christian culture. And we do this with compassion, conviction, and courage. My name is Deshaun. I'm one of the pastors here at Building 28. And for those who are wondering where Peter is, who sits in this lovely chair with his lovely locks, he is just taking a break for just <laughs> for just this one. He's but, gonna love that. But, 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 the ones who you all come here for, um, I introduce first one of the pastors at Building 28 Church, Mr. Aaron Curran. Mr. Aaron Curran. Now you sound like I Danny Van. Hey, yeah, listen. Mr. Sir, uh, it's respect, it is man. Vicar. Oh, Vicar. Vicar. <laughs> <laughs> I see he uh, takes it too long. He takes it too long. Oh, man, it's good to be back here today. And, um, and Deshaun is too modest. He's too modest. He is going to be most likely filling in as a co-podcast host um, because of availability. We love Peter. But like we said a couple of times ago now, uh, he can't always be here. But that's fine. That's fine. We get it. But thanks for tuning in. He does have lovely locks. Um, so it's a heavy topic today. It's a heavy topic. And if I'm completely honest, it's one that I haven't spent as much time studying. And maybe that's to my shame because Jesus talks about it a lot. He talks about it a lot. And often controversial and almost always unsettling topic is this biblical concept of hell, Hades, Gehenna, uh, Sheol, I mean, depending on what slant you take, lake of fire, eternal destruction. Throughout the centuries of Christianity, the doctrine of hell has been maligned, ridiculed, and utilized to accomplish fear-driven evangelism, misunderstanding, and even denial. But as believers who take seriously the scriptures, which hopefully you do, the sincere question that must be answered is, what is hell? Yeah. So. Heavy question. Heavy question. To help us answer this, we're all going to listen to him today. Yes. <laughs> he is going to be asking my first question. He's read Dante's today. Inferno front to back. I tried. So <laughs> I have not finished. <laughs> I haven't finished it either, man. It's, it's tough. And he's also been a pastor. So he has some firsthand experience. Superpowers back on the podcast with us today to help us answer this pressing question: Hell, destruction, condemnation, lake of fire. What is it? And we're hey, stick with us to this because we're going to come to the end and hopefully try to answer the question of how, how is this doctrine comforting mm. to the Christian? Mm. But to start it off, Deshaun, take it away, bro. Yeah, so as you were talking about before, there's been so many different views about hell. So we have. One extreme where that is all that people grew up hearing about is you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you need to repent. Two, we have the other extreme where it's Rob Bell, where it's hell just doesn't exist and there is no concept of this and just things along that lines or where a lot of people at where there's actually a C.S. Lewis quote where he says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. And can I just ask you guys before we get to that first question? Yeah. Would you agree with Lewis there? Read the quote again. So his quote is from the problem of pain. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. It's ref- referring to hell. So I feel like a lot of people are at that place. And that gets into 
comfort and agreement with it and things along that line. I would disagree with Lewis. Okay. Uh, Sproul said the same thing okay. in, in his ministry. He's one of my heroes, heroic figures that I look to a lot, but I would disagree. And I think that question more reveals Lewis as a 20th century man. He is a child of his own times, just like we are. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that yeah. this question exists, that, that there's such a rebuttal against it mm-hmm. shows where the heart posture of modern man is at the time. This has not always been the question. If we were to ask down the centuries, Lord willing, one day when we get to meet them all, yeah. we can perhaps ask the question, what has been the doctrine that's been the hardest to swallow for you, for the early church, for the dark ages, for the, the Reformation time, yeah. things like this, mm-hmm. yeah. for our modern time, I don't think we'd always hear hell as the answer. And so I would disagree with Lewis. I don't know what I would put there, honestly, yeah. but I would not say that it's hell. Ah, gosh, I, I have a problem with the question at all. Yeah. <laughs> because if we then lay an answer there, I mean, sure, there's we should be honest with where we yeah. struggle with, what yeah. we try to mm-hmm. really get into our hearts. But if we really trust that the Bible is God's word, whether we agree with it or not, we're going to submit to it and seek to be in agreement with it and try to overcome our natural posture against it. it. So how about for you and how would you? What would you say? So, so look, I agree with Piper. This is the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. Like this is the The seventh point of Calvinism. But, but, but (laughs) I want to be very clear on this. That is a statement of rather unmitigated trust because from a human perspective, this does not seem the best of all possible worlds. From a human perspective, sure. where I eradicate pain, right? Would I eradicate sex trafficking? Would you eradicate sex trafficking right yes. now if you could? Yes. Yeah, you would. But God chooses not to. Yeah. And so from a human perspective, if I was God, humanly speaking, would, from, from what I understand, would I want universalism? Would I make the efficacy of Christ's atonement apply to all people? Yes. I would probably. So hell would be irrelevant. I would agree with Lewis. I, I wish that, but so, so you see what I'm saying? Like, look, no secret. I'm a Lewis fanboy. Love like him. I love Lewis. And so I get where he's coming from. Like we are humans. We are finite. We are yeah. image bearers of God. And so from a human perspective, I don't have the mind of the omniscient one. And so do I trust and believe that this is the best of all possible worlds? Yes. But from a human perspective, would I like to eradicate cancer? Would I like to eradicate such trafficking? Would I like to eradicate yeah. eternal damnation if Tolkien was a true ardent Vatican following Catholic and has been in hell now for the last 70 years? Would I want him to not be in hell? Yeah, I'd, I'd rather him right. be redeemed. Yeah. Like I'd rather. And so, I mean, even Paul hints at that in a different way in Romans 9, where he says, I I would be accursed if my brothers weren't accursed or, you know, like I, I think there's a, a feeling, at least to me, of what Lewis is saying there is, I wish this wasn't true. Yeah. I wish that this was not true. So, so then, that's what? a different question. I, you know, I get it, but it's very nuanced but that's, in this that's discussion. The part, even even yeah. as we're talking through this right now is, why do you guys think that reason for the division on that? Where there's someone on one side will just automatically say, no, this is what it is. We need to drive home this point about hell. Other end where it's hell doesn't even exist. We need to get rid of this doctrine. Or where on the Lewis side, where he's saying, I believe it, but if I had the power, I would not want this to be true. Why do you guys think there's so much division amongst Christians and theologians, especially? Which, by the way, I think we're getting at the heart of your first question, yeah. of the consternation surrounding this. 
Jeffrey and I were sitting at, at a brewery in Safety Harbor last night for somebody's birthday. And we were at the end of the table and we were watching a celebration of Kobe Bryant. Mm-hmm. And leave it to me, leave it to me <laughs> to ruin our moment of watching sports. But I just looked at Jeffrey and go, is it, it's weird to think, it's been two years, it was the two years since this helicopter went down. Yeah. And I'm not, I, look, I, believe me, I'm not trying to be like mean spirit or harsh when I say this, but I go, man, it's weird. If the Bible is true, two years in hell, hmm. like two years, that is sobering. That is frightful. That is, I mean, Jeffrey literally looked at me and he goes, man, like, I'm, I'm just glad I've been back in the word lately. Like, I've, you know, like just because the, the heaviness and the gravity of that moment, uh, you know, for a different discussion, if you're not walking with Jesus, you're not in the word you don't have much assurance of salvation. There's not a lot of hope that's present, uh, practically speaking. And so that that's where the consternation comes from is, man, if it's if it's really what scripture, we're gonna get into like what it what scripture says and yep. what it means and what we think it means. And but if it's really this horrific place of either temporal, if you're an annihilationist, or eternal punishment, judgment, like that is a very, very frightful thing, whatever yeah. it is. And so it's just easier to be like, I just don't believe in a God who can do this. Yeah. You know, like, and that's not what I'm saying in my initial response to Lewis quote. And that's not what Lewis is saying either. Yeah. It's not that we don't believe in a God who can do this. We don't believe that he's just and all he does and what he does is right and good and true. It's that as I sit here, I just can't, I can wrap my mind around it in one sense, but wrapping my heart in line with my mind around it, that's really difficult. That's, a difficult. Like, that's, that's heavy. That's just, that's just hard, man. That's hard. So, how, about, how about for you, Adam? How, what do you feel like is that reasoning why people struggle so much and there's so much division on it? Because we now see through a mirror dimly. Hmm. To quote Paul, yeah. 1 Corinthians, we don't see as we ought to see. We don't feel what we ought to feel. We don't think what we ought to think. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen sinful world that's in rebellion against its creator. And therefore, there's so much corruption remaining within us that when we read things in the Bible that we don't understand or we don't like, we automatically fight against it. Yeah. And so, yes, there's a very human element here where we struggle with this, but one day that struggle will be over when we see things from God's perspective yeah. Yeah. and we understand. Not saying that we rejoice in these things, things like right? That, yeah. But yeah, there's there's a level of already and not yet to this. We are, we're already redeemed. We're still being redeemed. We will be redeemed. And part of that is shaping our hearts, our postures, our submission yeah. to scripture. And that'll grow throughout life. And yeah. we'll ebb and flow in that as churches and communities and individuals. So there's going to be a lot of division and a lot of disagreement and a lot of debate. I think there's a distinction that needs to be made. I think there's two wrong ways and personally, one right way to approach this. I think one of the wrong ways is to divorce emotion entirely from this conversation and be like, whatever God does is right and just, and we just trust him. And, you know, it's those people are in hell and they deserve to be in hell. And we're actually kind of happy about that, that they're in hell today. I think that is a callous, unbiblical way. That's, that's right. anti-Jesus when he right. weeps over Jerusalem. The other false way is to lean too heavy into our emotions which is going to necessarily lead us into a denial of truth because we can't figure it all yeah. out. We don't know it all. And this seems, even though, and we'll get into it, even though we all have concepts of justice and we would all be grieved at injustice, true injustice taking place, mm-hmm. this just seems too much 
for our finite minds. And so the right way to approach this is with a, without divorcing ourselves from emotion, feeling the weight of this, feeling the sadness and grief of this, which I believe that exists in the heart of God just to a certain extent, different from us because of his impassibility, but but there's a grief, but at the same time, not allowing our emotions to dictate the truth. Yeah. But allowing our emotions kind of open us up to the exploration of what the scripture really say and submitting ourselves to that. I think that's where we need to come down. That's it. I believe in this issue. That's good. I I agree. And it's one of those things, like you said, it's heavy. And especially as we are looking from a finite perspective and we're looking, even when it comes to the reality of sin and not feeling like sin is really that sinful or that bad, and which we're going to get into a little bit later in this topic. But before we get into are all the, is it justifiable, eternal, all those different things like that. Just looking at the reality of what hell is. And as the Bible speaks of it as fire and burning and these different um, words that are used to describe hell, is the scripture speaking of a literal burning fire, um, eternal, even if getting into that, or is this all just allegorical? And I guess we'll start with you, Adam, on that question. So is the speak, scripture speaking to a literal on these things or is it just figurative language? I don't know how he's going to answer. I, know, I, 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 I want to see. I think hell is a literal place. Yeah. And Jesus speaks of it literally, but it, that's, that's not to say there's not figurative language about it in scripture. Got you. So hell is a place, just like heaven is a place. Yeah. And um, to define it as just figurative or to define it as, no, this is just the suffering that's here on earth is to do something that the Bible doesn't do. Hmm. So hell is a destination that all mankind is running toward apart from the grace of God. Yeah. How about for you? Yeah. I I believe, I agree with what Adam's saying entirely. I wanted to, look, I'm just going to be honest. I wanted to take the devil's advocate approach here and try to argue from the (laughs) Robert. Because I've I've been argued with from that perspective a Mm -hmm. lot of the, of this is just mean and this is vindictive and this is capricious and this is, you know. But no, it is definitely a place where is unanswerable. In the center of the earth? No. Doubtful. <laughs> I don't think so. There's no one. Um, definitely a place. Definitely a reality. Hell is hell is eternal. But just like, okay, so when we talk about uh, reading N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope right now, and I agree with him that I think that we have not made enough of the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for the resurrection of us at the end of time. And so in the intermediate, when we talk about, everybody just talks about dying and going to heaven forever. Well, the way I see it, and you, you're welcome to disagree, anybody's welcome to disagree, but is heaven will be inaugurated into the new heavens and new earth at the resurrection. And so heaven is what we talk about now in the intermediate. Yeah. And hell is what we talk about conversely in the intermediate. So eventually hell, Satan, death yep. will be thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. And that is the second death. Like that's for all time. So I say that's very different. That's how I see it is hell's the intermediate, but that's all we have to talk about because yeah. we're, not, we're never going to talk. I mean, we're not say that's all we have. We can talk about the lake of fire. It's, it has similarities to hell. I agree with Adam also that, you know, I was raised in a strict literalism where the fire is real. The darkness is real. Falling. And the falling is real. Weeping, mm-hmm. and, the, and the gnashing, gnashing of, teeth. of teeth is real. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's not, but I think more likely is that this is, allegorical language for a horror that that can't be put into words that is worse than gotcha. so, so for somebody who's like comforted that hey maybe the fire isn't real yeah it's going to be worse than 
And we'll get into what, why. We, what anyone can imagine. Then what we can imagine. Yeah. If heaven's trying to be more glorious than, than what, what we can we, possibly yeah. imagine. It's true on the other side. Yeah. Um, then it's true conversely. Yeah. And I think that's important to clarify that distinction, even though you guys are saying that it's allegorical or that it could possibly not be exactly literal. It doesn't mean like, oh, it's just a place where you're just miserable and it's not that great. But it's actually a legitimate thing that honestly is probably far worse than the descriptions and on the other side of it with heaven, too. And so as you guys are talking through about hell and the allegorical nature of it. How about when it comes to just people who differ even on something along that lines, what are the necessary things that you think the scriptures do say hell must be like? And what are some ways that we can fall out of that? What are some ways that people can go too far with trying to get rid of the idea and understanding of hell? Have you read The Great Divorce? Mm -hmm. For those who don't know, I would highly recommend, highly recommend reading The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's good. I love it. It's good. It's, It's a picture of the afterlife of sorts. And that's the thing we have to keep in mind is when we talk, when we write about the subject of the afterlife, we're writing in shadows very mm-hmm. so much. So we're writing in incomplete pictures. And for Lewis, I think it is, you know, he, C.S. Lewis writes The Great Divorce uh, about these people trapped in this kind of underworld of sorts who take a bus ride to heaven. And we can get into theological ramifications about that at a different point. But I love it because He's getting after a couple of the aspects I think that Jesus is getting after. While he's not talking about the physical agony of hell, which mm-hmm. is what's first and foremost in everybody's mind for some weird reason. because, And I say for weird reason because while physical pain sucks in this life, I think we can all acknowledge that emotional pain is worse. Mm-hmm. I have friends who just lost their eight-year-old to four and a half years of cancer. She just died. That's not necessarily I mean, it's a physical pain that comes from an angst of the soul. Yeah. When Jesus is anguishing in the garden in Luke 22, I think it can be very easily argued, and I would believe that he, the cup he wishes to pass is not the physical suffering, even though that's going to be terrible. No, yeah. it's the being, being nailed and lashed. It's being yeah. forsaken by the yeah. Father. And so while we have this, the, the, the first and foremost, like we think, oh, I don't want to endure like the physical torments of hell. And yeah, that's going to be horrific, whatever it is. What Lewis gets after in The Great Divorce is really this reality of, Everybody lives in isolation, which for the introvert might be like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> but if you if you've ever read the transcripts of a prisoner who was kept in solitary confinement, it is bewildering. They lose their minds. Like it's not. And so it's it's this darkness, this gloom, the separation from everyone. It's always rain, even indoors in the great divorce, it's always raining. It's always dreary. You don't see people. There's no happiness. There's no shed of common grace there. And so your question, I love that. I love that imagery because it gets at, at a more haunting reality, maybe even in physical pain, that hmm. to be absent from the body, I believe to be absent from the body is to be present for the Lord in condemnation and in salvation because the righteous celebrate the goodness of God for all eternity in his very presence and the, hey, we might not like it, but the unrighteous are in the presence of the Lamb Revelation says, for all of eternity, suffering under God's just wrath. Yeah, that was it. And, and why, we'll get into yeah. why and, and how and how I see that play out, which might be different from you guys. But I, I, I say I love. I don't love anything about this doctrine necessarily, you know, other than maybe the justice of it, the justice of God in it. But the idea of, of isolation, hopelessness, that emotional angst, that darkness of the soul, which can never be cured. That's heavy in and of itself. And I, so I like that with Great Divorce. 
and the the imagery there. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well I mean, said. Very good book. Very good book. How about um, for with you, Adam? I think the scriptures present to us a hell, like Aaron says, is in the direct presence of God. Um, we can talk about what that means where first Thessalonians, second Thessalonians say separation from God. I'll get to that in just a second. But a hell that's in the direct presence of God apart from the righteous covering of Christ. So you think about what would happen to us, physical beings, if we were right in the presence of the sun, we would be obliterated in a moment. I think that's a picture of what hell is like. I mean, uh, Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. Isaiah 6 in his holiness, Isaiah could not stand before him, but the Lord atoned for his sin, forgave him and covered him. Um, The righteous are in the direct presence of God, being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, enjoying his very presence. All the wicked are also for all eternity in the direct presence of God without the righteous covering of Christ, being consumed by God who is a consuming fire in his holiness forever and ever. And for them, words can't describe how horrible it is, how painful. For those with us, and hey, I can't help it. We went to the great divorce, so my mind's thinking this way right now. If we could, all analogies breaking down, I get it. But if we, if you could visualize in our old house, we had a double-sided fireplace. So it led to the, from the billiard room to the, in the library to the living room. Okay. And so you just see the fire on either side. Hmm. I, I mentioned this in my sermon a few weeks ago, that one of the cool things, I think the reason why God reveals himself so, oft, himself so often in scripture as a fire is because a fire is both consuming mm-hmm. and comforting. comforting. Yeah. And so if you can yeah. see it this way, on one side of the blaze, in the living room side, are the condemned who are in the presence of the fire, but it is consuming them. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of this are the righteous who are in the presence of the same fire, but the comfort and the graciousness of that fire. That's how, that's how I see it when we come to like scripture is um, the choice is before us, a legitimate decision before us. And, and will we choose to be comforted by the fire or will we choose to be consumed? What is it Jesus? I, I can't remember the reference now where he says the, the rock he used that analogy. Either you'll be you'll fall upon the rock and be broken, or mm-hmm. the rock will fall upon you and shatter yeah. you. Matthew. Like one or the other. Yeah, Matthew. one or the other. I mean, you're either going to be broken over your sin. Same descriptors with the fire, like same with use. the rock. It's yeah. it's either you're going to be broken over your sin by the rock that is Christ, or he's going to shatter. Like one or the other is yeah. true. Yeah. And so I love all that imagery because it helps us to understand something that we can't. I don't think fully comprehend. Yeah. So I guess the next question I'm going to ask is one that's getting at a heart of. What a lot of people are probably wondering, and as they think about hell, and when they hear about it being eternal, so we'll ask, talk about that one, but is it justifiable? Do people think they're like, hey, the worst thing that I did was I cheated on my taxes, or <laughs> may have lied, I, I don't think I did that much bad thing, so why does God see fit to say, hey, you messed up for, let's say you lived for 75 years, however long it is, I messed up for that amount of time, why can't I just have 75 years of punishment versus do I really need to be in hell for eternity? Shouldn't hell just be for the worst types of people? So what would you say to people who are wrestling through that part of like, is this justifiable on God's behalf to say you need to go to hell for an eternity? Daniel 12, one through two. And there should be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found in the book. And many 
of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. Now, some people have argued, well, that's just the fire is eternal. Hell is not eternal. Prepare for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishments. So it's not just the fire, but it's the, you know, the punishment. Second Thessalonians 1, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Jude 13, the blackness of darkness, utter darkness has been reserved forever. So is hell like so annihilationism has become very popular i don't believe in annihilationism i believe that just as life is everlasting in bliss and glory and grace for the redeemed so hell lake of fire punishment destruction is everlasting for the condemned and so so that answers kind of that question that's that's Mm -hmm. where i land based on the scripture you're Mm -hmm. welcome to argue that you know whoever's listening but i mean scripture seems pretty clear if we're going to submit ourselves to it so then is it justifiable? The way I'd see it to, to help us try to understand this is, and I don't want to be like too graphic. Let's say that um, someone kidnapped your child and grossly abused them. And they were kidnapped for two weeks, abused every day, horrifically. And the authorities, the police found your child and you're relieved. And then you go to the courtroom, you know, the day of the trial, the day of the verdict. And the judge says, um, this was terrible. I agree. It was terrible. It was unjust. And I'm sentencing you, the violators, these three men responsible for this. I'm sentencing you to two weeks in prison. How would we react to that? We we would all say, no, hold on a second. Two weeks in prison for this. And the reason we would react is because I would contend that the verdict given is not in correlation to the length of the crime, but the severity of the crime. Like that, that's, that's the reality. And we all, we all can get that. We all can get that, that it, it takes somebody three minutes to kill somebody. That doesn't mean they should spend three minutes in prison. Yeah. Like, you know, it's severity of the crime. And so if I am, if I cheat the IRS, according to your analogy, yeah. then there's going to be a penalty that I have to pay mm-hmm. that they have, that they as the authoritative body have decided, hey, this is the penalty for cheating or tax, or I might have to go to prison for tax evasion for a length of time that they as the governing authority have said this is, you know, and we could argue if that's right or wrong. Yeah. But when it comes to the authoritative entity, God himself, who is not finite like the IRS or like the criminal or the, ju- the fiscal judge, but is infinite, then our crimes, no matter how trite they are, are of infinite proportion. These are. And so if that, if that is the reality that every sin I've committed is of infinite consequence, the sin of rejection of Christ, of refusing to believe in Christ, of infinite treason, then the verdict is infinite in consequence. Gotcha. That's how I see it. And gotcha. that, to me, it, that's completely justifiable in my mind. Like, I would look at a judge and say, you're unjust if you're going to sentence criminals to two weeks for two weeks of atrocity. Good. That's unjust. And any of us would. Yeah. God is completely just. He's given us minds to comprehend and understand this. And so his justice prevails not only theoretically or theologically that, oh, I just trust the Lord, but like in reality and intellectually, we go, he has determined, he has set the laws. They're mm-hmm. perfect and eternal laws based on his character and nature. We have violated them. We're infinitely guilty. How about for you, Adam? On a horizontal human level, I don't think you'll ever be able to justify eternal torment. Yeah. On the vertical level, when we're looking at us and God, we have to embrace that. And so I think every sin against this God is not just a little 
Piccadillo, it's cosmic treason that demands cosmic and eternal punishment because he's a cosmic and eternal God. So as you guys are talking about them, that you said it was justifiable. Why can't God just say, do believe and do annihilate the people and just say, all right, you've done enough time because as we've been talking about and working through of him even sustaining them to be able to stay in that being in that state of tormenting things along the lines, why couldn't it just come to a place of, all right, just sh- let's shut this down. Like they've had enough, they've been in torment for long enough. So what do you guys say when people are wrestling through that side of it of he has the ability to stop all this and just say, hey, um, I've been satisfied. God created male and female to be immortal. I mean, they're not, we're not eternal, but because we don't have, we have an origin point, immortal yeah. but souls. to be immortal souls, to be yeah. immortal beings. Yeah. Okay. Um, you and I were created, all of us are created, and God hasn't changed his mind, to live forever. Now, the fall in this dimension wrecked that, brought about the curse of sin, and Christ gives us hope in the present, but doesn't alleviate us from the curse of the fall in the present. We'll still die. Mm-hmm. All of us will still die. But he does alleviate us, his people, from the curse of that in the future, and he doesn't alleviate the damned from that. So if you can see this, Francis Chan has this illustration of like a rope going on and on and on, like like imagine it's forever. And there's like a little piece of red at the beginning. He's like, this is your life. And he's talking about eternity and living for eternity. But if I can use that, if I can kind of steal that analogy, if this is your physicality here, like this, a two inches of rope, that's, that's the 70, 80, 90 years you're going to live. And then the rope goes on and on indefinitely. That's a fitting example, understanding of that is your immortality that you still have. Like you're going to live forever that's the that's god's design he doesn't cut the rope off if you don't believe like it goes on forever and either you will live forever in eternal bliss redeemed by christ and therefore alleviated because he took the hell that that we deserve or you'll live forever the rope goes on and on forever either way you're gonna live forever like your your life your life doesn't end when you draw your last breath that's not the way that god designed it to be from the whole of scripture he's the the creator and designer best of all possible worlds so he's gonna go on forever and so that's how i understand it um is like that's just the way if i I create something i create it i don't take into consideration what my creation wants Hmm. i just create something yeah this is how i wanted to function and work that's how god created us and in his benevolence to us, gracious benevolence, even after our parents send our first parents, he gives us an opportunity. He gives us a legitimate choice before us to repent or to perish, one or the other. And, and every person makes a volitional choice in that matter, like a volitional decision. I have no problem saying that. I think scripture teaches it plainly. So that actually leads into my next question. So as you guys have established the reality of hell, established that it is eternal, um, the punishment that is to come from it. And so the reality is people end up there. And so as we work through that of people ending up in hell for different reasonings, but the question then comes is, is God sending them there or are people going there volition? That's some of the things I've heard people work through when it comes to our, how do we rationalize this to make God and we can disagree or agree with the statement, but a lot of people say their reasoning is because they don't want God to seem as harsh and as as mean, for lack of a better term. I would would like Adam to pick it apart, but before he does, I think any conscientious biblical follower of Christ is going to say yes and yes. Yes is the answer. Clearly, he he sends them to hell. We talked about this on our Double Predestination podcast. He sends them to hell, and yet clearly 
they choose to go there. Now, to which extent these this happens, that's where we can pick it apart. Yeah. So take yeah, it away, pe- People will land on different sides of that question <laughs> yeah. and see, see the Double Predestination podcast for how even in the, how close people can be. There's there's miles of difference sometimes yeah. in these positions. But yeah, I mean, no one in hell is there because they were forced to be there. They're there because they rejected the gospel. Hmm. Hands down, flat out, at, at the end of all things, they were forced against their will to submit and bow the knee and call Jesus Lord. They're there in hell because they rejected Christ. Yet at the same time, God is not surprised by these things, not aloof from these things, not distant from these things in his sovereign providence where he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Mm -hmm. Just because we say God is fully sovereign does not mean we're saying man has no responsibility. And just if we say man has true responsibility does not therefore mean that God's not sovereign. Scripture says man has full responsibility and God has full sovereignty. And the Bible never really, I think, seeks to explain how those two things can exist at the same time. It just affirms them both. That's truth. And tells us to embrace them both. And so that, 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 that would be my answer to that. that. But the heart of the question, I think, is really getting at motives and things like this. And is, is God a good God for allowing these, these things to happen? And I'd, maybe a theme here in our conversation is insofar as we talk about these things on a horizontal level, we will be frustrated, not understand them, and mm-hmm. arrive at very unbiblical and unwarranted conclusions. But like the psalmist in Psalm 73, he couldn't understand the prosperity of the wicked until he came into the sanctuary of God, until he started looking at these things from God's perspective. Mm -hmm. And he saw that the end of the wicked was suffering and just. And so we come back to what God told Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Hmm. Genesis 18 to 22 there. How about for you, Aaron? Yeah, so you know this. And we talk a little about it. Um, I reject fatalism. As we, as we all wholeheartedly. Do. In any form of it, any traces of it. And by saying that, I'm not in any way saying that Sean or Adam believes yeah. in, in any trace of this. I'm just saying there are some of my Reformed brothers who do. Um, For sure. And mm-hmm. that is sad. God is not that disconnected. Yeah. Or aloof. Like, or, or capricious. Like, he's just, yeah. he's just not. Like, against, you know. Yeah. Um, so... What I believe is very Lewis-esque, but very Keller-esque, but it doesn't matter what Keller or Lewis really believed. It just, mm-hmm. you know, matters what scripture indicates to me. It's that we are on a natural downward trajectory where the unrepentant, from the moment we're born, our cry, the cry of our heart is, I hate God. I don't want God. Now, we want, for the moral person listening, the good citizen, the good neighbor, Look, I get it. We want the gifts of God. We, we want peace and, and hope and joy, and, but we don't want God. That's why I would agree with the Puritans that even in hell, the unregenerate man, while he is pleading for the gifts of God, still does not want God. Hmm. There's not been a heart transformation, but that's maybe for nerd discussion. So we're on this natural downward trajectory, or to, to be consistent with our analogy from the Double Predestination podcast, we are marching toward cliffs mm-hmm. willingly. Because the opposite is God. And we say, I hate God. I don't want God. I don't want a Lord. I don't want a sovereign. I don't want to submit my life to anybody. 
I don't fully understand it. I'm the measure of all things. So we're marching toward that. And what our death signifies is the final culmination of what we have wanted our entire lives, life apart from the graciousness of God. It's really what it is. Because everything, you know, everything we enjoy in this life is a gift of common grace. Like everything or or a gift of saving grace. One or the other, I, I believe. I believe yeah. on the cross, he is yeah. the savior of all men, particularly of those who believe. There is a temporary buffer, if you will, whereby we are guaranteed to be able to sit here and drink coffee and have air conditioning and enjoy nice uh, hangout, yeah, have yeah. relationships, experience love and whatever measure we can. This, yeah. Those are all yeah. this common graces from the Lord to all people pretty much. And so while we want those things still, we don't want the giver of those things. But my child at Christmas going, oh, this, this gift is awesome. This gift is awesome. This gift yeah. is awesome. I hate you. Like, I hate you, dad. But this gift is awesome. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. No, that's our I lives. It's, it's spent like soaking up what we want and hating the giver of those things and, and saying to him every single time he gives us a gift, whether we realize it or not, saying to him, I don't want you. I don't want you in my life. I hate you. I don't want you around. Yeah. I don't want to submit to you. And, and death in this life is the final moment where we say, Christopher Hitchens, one of my favorite atheists, said, if you hear about a deathbed confession, he died in 2008 of esophageal cancer. He said, if you hear about a deathbed confession, don't believe it. Hmm. And I think that's the testament of every unbeliever. Like I'm going to my tomb, still hanging on to my self-righteousness and my self-sovereignty, and I refuse to bow the knee. And so death comes. And with that, the trajectory just continues downward, but now there's no common grace. There's no manifest gracious presence of God at work in our life. There's no longer any patience. There's no longer any hope. And that's what I see. And so some people say it, may, it takes the edge off in a sense or makes it more palatable. I don't think it does, but I think it lays the culpability squarely on our shoulders where no one, Romans 1, no one can come to the end and say, I didn't have a chance. I didn't have a chance. And so I see that where, where. What I see happening on this downward trajectory, as by nature we're spinning, but by volition we're walking, so both are taking place, is that the Lord, the Lord steps in and gives us a new heart by re regeneration and gives us a new volition, a new will, whereby we believe. And then He, the Spirit of God, miraculously by the work of the Son, takes us off that trajectory mm -hmm. and reconciles us to the Father because now we as a believer in some form or fashion, want God. Not so, just the gifts of God, but we desire God. So the question I have in the middle of that, and I guess the question or the way that people propagate it or say it is, um, essentially people go to hell because they want to be there. Yeah. So would you guys agree that that's the desire, the way to talk about it, or for people to- That'd be like saying a prisoner goes to prison because he wants to be there. Well, like, they that's can, how I see it. They can say that as much as they want, but when they get what they want, they're not going to want it. No, exactly. Gotcha. So, so the yeah. prisoner stands before the judge. Yeah. And the judge, if he's just, rightly condemns, while, while there might be an ache of sorts in the heart of the judge that here's a father who cheated on his tax returns and now has to go away to prison for 15 years and his family's sitting there wailing and mourning. Just, there might be an ache in the heart, but if the judge is just, he doesn't take that emotion into play. He says, this is what's right. Yeah. And he willfully sends that criminal to prison. Like that's, that's how I see it. And the criminal begrudgingly has to embrace the consequence of his crimes. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't want to be in prison, most likely. Yeah. 
Like he, he wants to continue getting away with it. Yeah. That, that is how I see us. Like God is the judge. There might be, seems to be an ache in the heart of God, a legitimacy that he desires all men to be saved and come to acknowledge the truth. First Timothy. Ezekiel 18, 32. Yeah. Like, like there seems to be these, these, these factors at play within the mm. will of God, multifaceted because he's infinite, but that he desires that. But yet at the same time, that, that ache of sorts does not in any way jeopardize his justice. And he willfully, volitionally sends the criminal of infinite crimes to hell, cast them into the lake of fire. Yeah. While the, the criminal is fully culpable and most likely, I would imagine, does not like the verdict. Yeah. Does not want that. Wants to continue to get away with their transgression. Yeah. And, and, I, and I agree with you in that of people don't want the penalty. They want the freedom to be able to do what we please, not have God. Yeah. And ultimately, as yeah. you guys are getting at, it'll lead towards that of, of them ultimately getting that they don't have yeah. the Lord. And sadly, it is through that punishment element of it. So I wanted to return back to something that we were starting talking about. We said mm. it through that phrase from the problem of pain from Lewis. And just to get clarification on it for just people who are wondering and thinking through who say, like, I don't really like this doctrine. Do you guys think there is any danger in somebody saying that overtly or out loud that, hey, I believe in hell, but I really don't like it. Do you guys think there's any danger in having that mindset? I think it depends. Okay. Pastorally, compassionately, we have to answer like that. Because if we're honest, we all have been at spots like that. And perhaps some of you watching, listening are there now with any doctrine. I mean, it varies to who we are based on temperament. We'll struggle with different things, Mm -hmm. I think. But there's someone that says this about hell. It is not dangerous if... They recognize that they should not trust their feelings about these things, even their own interpretation about these things, apart from the community of the local church. Um, Not saying that the church is the end-all, be-all, but we should not trust our own opinions, our own positions, apart from community. Uh, We are not uh, flawless in our interpretation. So if that question then leads someone back to the source, back to the truth, back to the scripture, yeah. um, I think it's a good way to grow in this. If it leads you back to the source and you grow in your understanding and see it, then stop looking at these things horizontally, start seeing these things vertically. But it can be very dangerous if that question then continues to cast doubt, continues to lead someone down the trajectory where your own opinions, your own ideas continue to rise while God's word, my Christian friends, the local church, like all these yeah. things starts to descend in our view. And all of a sudden we are now the infallible interpreters of all things. And therefore, if I think it, it must be true. I've had church members and friends that have gone down this this road and yeah, to, yeah. to date, they do not resemble anything that looks like Christianity, if they still claim to be Christians, many have just left altogether. Yeah. And so many start this way down the bad trajectory, and it it is the first fruits of a bad end, I think. And so that should warn people yeah. to turn around and to 
fight against our own temptation to not submit to what's in the Bible, but rather yeah. fight to understand it yeah. rather than rejecting it. This is such, this is such a, um, a mind tease of a topic. Well, because there's, I feel like there's a sign mind tease. There's so many directions we can go. Like uh, as you're talking, like there's three or four like mm. offshoots like yeah, going on in my mind. Because yeah. I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking about how our view of justice has been so compromised, like even temporal justice now. Uh, it's been so <laughs> compromised by media and political agenda and personal humanistic tendency where, you know, I go back to like the Derek Chauvin trial and verdict, a police officer who killed George Floyd and people going, it wasn't really murder. It was, you know, it was just negligence or whatever. And then there's others who are like, justice is served. And then you go to Kyle Rittenhouse and it's like, conversely, the same people that were saying it wasn't really murder are now going, exoneration. Like it's, and, and, and the people were saying there was justice for this. Or, it's and yet we're sitting here saying this has to be more than racist and, and, stuff. And so, yeah. And so, and so I'm, I, I, <laughs> yeah. the reason I use that is because I'm going, our view of just temporal justice itself, I hope you can understand, is so flippant and flimsy that it's influenced by so many factors, including our own hearts, that when we come to like this view of divine justice, to Adam's point, this was another offshoot. I'm just going, would we prefer that Derek Chauvin gets life in prison, the guy who killed George Floyd, or would we prefer that God had stepped in? Converted Chauvin, converted Floyd, and it had never happened in the first place. The latter. Yeah. yeah. We, we all say yeah. that. Immediately. Oh, yeah. so, so we so, ought to. Yeah. So, from, <laughs> so, from, so from a human mindset, we kind of all agree, we'd rather the courtroom scenario never take place. Right. Yeah. We'd rather the judge have the power to have kept the criminal from committing, committing crimes crime. in the first place. Yeah. Like, we would rather that. So for, humanly speaking... I think it's fine for us to look at like, okay, so we can go back to the temporal analogy. It's fine for us to look at George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and Child Rittenhouse and all this and ask ourselves the question, is justice really being served here? It's wrong for us to start espousing whatever it might be. And this is for the sake of analogy, so I don't care about necessarily about all that, but it's wrong for us to start espousing false views of justice. And so to Adam's point, as he's talking, I'm going, all of this is kind of co coming together in a convoluted mess for me to, to answer, to really kind of simply rise up and go, Somebody's like, I don't really like this. Is it okay for that, that, you know, that admittance? I don't, I don't like hell or lake of fire or eternal punishment to cause us to question, hey, what is legitimate? Where, what is the Bible teaching? Sure. Like, like to, to birth these questions, but is, is it wrong for it to compromise our view of divine justice? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I welcome the questions. I welcome any questions. Is God legitimate? Yeah, is he real? Right. Is the scripture right. authentic? Like, I welcome any of these questions. They're good questions. We questions should be asking bad. these questions. Yeah, not bad. Um, and we should submit ourselves to the answers of scripture, first and foremost. But it should not allow our view of God's goodness or his grace or his justice to be compromised. Yeah. And so that actually... Yep. As you guys were talking about that, Aaron, and as you were talking about That's Adam, what I meant by my about that, he said, it's, 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 it's just a lot going on. There's a lot going on. So yeah. in that of where people are wrestling through, like, I really don't like this, mm. where on one end, it's to their own doing, whether the way they've processed or looked at it, but there is a responsibility on the other end of those who are preaching or proclaiming about hell. And so my question for you guys is, in what ways has the church, whether it's through just the people or through the preachers, gone wrong and misused the doctrine of hell, whether it's explanation um, and things along that line? So what ways have we messed up when it comes to explaining hell that's led to so much issues for people? 
when a preacher uses or a Christian or a church or anyone uses the doctrine of hell to scare someone into conversion, hmm. they're using it wrongly. Yeah. And that's a massive way. And sometimes it's people- so weird because, people, sorry to interject, because yeah. the most famous sermon preached on American soil. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the which could be argued if you read it. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that God used from the mouth of Jonathan Edwards on his second preaching of it, by the way, to spark the great awakening, you know, that we just talked about in a previous podcast. Sure. And sure, I, sure. I'm like, do I disagree with Edwards? No. Me? You know, his, his but if you there, read the yeah. sermon, I, I hear what I you're saying. I don't, yeah. I don't think he's guilty of that. Spiders you dangling over the precipice. Right. I, I, I think he's just <laughs> describing what the justice and judgment of God okay, is going true. to be that's like. True. That's true. But compare and contrast that situation with the Halloween church event that some churches do, Revelation Road, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. like hell confronted or things like this, where they where they bring kids in, they bring people in and they they take them through room to room to room following the story of this person who was a great sinner um, or maybe a churchgoer that just rejected the gospel and it gets worse, 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 worse and worse. And the goal of it is manipulation and terrifying every person who comes through this little trek. And then the last room is say this prayer and you'll be good to go. You're using the doctrine of hell in a way that scripture does not intend it to be used. It's meant to land on you the fear of God. It's not meant to just say, I don't want to go to that place. I want to go to the good place. Yeah. If that's the... If that's what people hear when we're talking about hell, we need to change how we talk about hell. Yeah. How about for you on your end? I, I just, like, I talk about this, and I'm not like a, everybody knows this, I'm not like a soft gospel, prosperity gospel guy at all. So when I say we shouldn't harp on the negative, I talk about sin a lot. But, you know, dull predestination, reprobation, I don't talk about reprobation a lot. I don't talk about condemnation a lot. And once again, I struggle with that because Jesus did talk about it a lot. So I'm like, you know, am I not being consistent there? But I think the allure of grace is grace itself, not the converse of it. And so I think we cannot appreciate salvation unless we talk about depravity. Yeah. And I think we cannot fully appreciate glory without talking about condemnation. But I think to spend unnecessary amounts of time on fear mongering, yeah. on dwelling on this doctrine, yeah. even though it is true is not necessarily helpful. To deny it altogether is a travesty. Yeah. You know, or to just say, even if you do embrace it, to say, I'm never going to talk about it. Because in reality, there are people in your lives, our listeners' lives, countless people in all of our lives who are on their way to that, on that downward trajectory, on their way to a Christless absent of the grace of God eternity. And we need, that is a sobering thought for us. But to go to them and be like, you don't want to go there, do you? Like, hmm. you don't want to, like, burn forever or worse. Is there gospel or, you in know, that? Yeah. It's, There's it's, no gospel it's like, in It's like, no, no, no. Like, like yeah. let's, let's, let's push forward the person in the work of Christ on, cro on yeah. the cross Amen. and his resurrection and the hope that he gives us in this life and life to come, the hope of the resurrection of our bodies. In, in the process, we will, we will through a, go a gospel proclamation, discuss the justice of God and the condemnation of the wicked. Mm -hmm. But I just think... Um, we have some circles have unnecessarily camped there. Staying on there, yeah. I agree with Adam. Edwards, even though it centers in the hands of an angry God, and there's a lot of talk about just wrath, that he's it's a presentation 
more than a fear mongering type of thing. Yeah, you know, more He's, than, and, and I get yeah, it. But here's the thing: hell will always be extremely fearful for those who are in danger of it. Yeah, yeah. So, some an unregenerate person reads sinners in the hands of an angry God, they're gonna be like, "This is fear mongering. This is you know, this is terrible." Um, a regenerate person reads it, and you're like, "This is heavy and it's dark and it's sad. It's gripping." But we're saved from the wrath of God. Amen. Yes, Amen. Perhaps I could be wrong. Perhaps this is why God ordained that hell be to make much of the riches of his grace. He's lavished on those who believe. That seems what Romans, Romans 9 is talking nine. about. Mm-hmm. And so just like you're saying, you, you can't embrace the light unless you see it contrasted with the dark life, death, yeah. Yeah. glory. Are we at the last question? Are we at the comfort in this doctrine? We're, we're about to. I wanted we're to kind of there. Okay. yeah. So I, I wanted to tie in between. Almost. No, no, I wanted to tie in between the two things that you guys were both saying. So on one end of it, where people misuse it and the fear mongering, where it can go too far because it's essentially trying to scare people into heaven. But on the flip side of it, as you were getting at a second ago, we don't also want to fall into the danger of because it's so fearful and we see all the misuses of it that we begin to just not talk about it all. And That'd so then an people, there is yeah. no real weight of, oh yeah, yeah, I hear about this Jesus and I know you tell me yeah. presenting this gospel, but like, what really is the consequence for not accepting Absolutely. or trusting? That would be what Lee, Lee, what C.S. Lewis <laughs> would refer to as soft soap. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's basically go to Barnes and Noble top 10 sellers in the religion section yeah, and all the ones like the top eight that are Christian soft soap. Yeah. Hands down. Cause yeah. Cause it's, it's trying to, it's why they sell 90 yeah. minutes in heaven and yeah. the boy who went to heaven, all this garbage oh, so yeah. much stuff. And yeah. I think there's a danger in that element because you can just be sitting there patting people on the back while they're legitimately on their way to hell and saying, everything's yeah. going to be fine. And so right. there's a way that we need to be mindful of not mm-hmm. to fear monger and try to scare people into, but also not to get away from, because this is something that God's word does reveal. And as you were asking about a second ago, as we talk about this and the heaviness and the weightiness of it, is there really any comfort that can be found in a doctrine like this as we study the scriptures and wrestle through this? I don't know where you land on this powers, but we use the Apostles' Creed. We kind of, we love the Apostles' Creed here. Descended into hell? And in the sixth or seventh century, they kind of added that phraseology of descended into hell. Based on the went and preached the spirits in prison, I think, you know, that I, I, we don't use that because I don't, I don't think Jesus literally went to hell. That's just where I am. But I think he endured everything we've talked about. Yeah. So that we would not. And so the full weight of God's wrath descended on the son, drawing us back to the great divorce. The son was rejected, isolated, cut off in that moment. The, he drank the cup of wrath. He bore the emotional and spiritual and, yes, physical anguish of hell, of damnation, of condemnation, in ways that we can never fully understand this, this side of heaven, glory, so that we will not have to. Mm-hmm. So it magnifies what Christ did. It magnifies the work of substitution that he stood in our place, took our hell death, conquered Satan, lying the witch in the wardrobe, defeated the white witch on the stone table, but not just, this is where Lewis gets yep. it wrong, not just as a ransom payments, not just as Christus Victor, all that's true, but as a substitution for his people in their place because he bore the condemnation. The, if you've read the Lion, the witch in the wardrobe, seen the movie, you get it. Like the ropes of God's wrath were laid upon him, the, the dagger of death was plunged into his heart, like the sin was laid upon his shoulders. And he took that, he took hell 
and he conquered it through his resurrection. So that's a comforting thought that mm-hmm. I don't have to endure that because he endured it. He, the just judge doesn't say to the criminal who's abused a child, you're free. He says to the criminal, my son will bear the consequence for yeah. these crimes against yeah. these children yeah. Yeah. And, and become that sin and pay for that mm-hmm. sin so that you don't, so you can receive amnesty. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's really comforting. That's yeah. That's that's probably the biggest one we need to take away. There are there are others. Justice of God is is one. In the end, there will be nothing that has ever been done wrong. There is no sin that will not receive punishment. Every account will be settled in the end, and we can have hope. Amen. That if we suffer unjustly so in this life. Um, from anyone or any group or any nation or things like this, God will settle this account in the end. So Paul will say in Romans 12, um, do not repay evil for evil, but leave it to the Lord for he will avenge. Amen. And he will come see the wrongdoer in, in this light. And perhaps that might even get at um, an argument against hell that they just see God as so angry. But horizontally, again, we don't do anger well. We get angry about the wrong things, express our anger in the wrong ways so often. Vertically, God does anger perfectly. Well, also, also the just, impassibility of God has to be addressed. He's not driven God is not prone by, to passion. Like he's not prone right. to passion. So his anger is complete his anger is completely other than our anger. It's yeah. a fixed righteous vexation yeah. against the way it doesn't rise and fall. He doesn't fly off and I mean it is yeah. a fixed it doesn't change. So I mean, Deshaun's preaching, I've given it to him to preach on 2 Thessalonians um, back half chapter one. The fact, I, I think that what Paul's contending for there is the fact that those who revile you for the sake of the gospel will get what's coming to them. Yeah. Not in a vindictive way, malicious way, but they're going to receive justice. That is intended to encourage and comfort the Thessalonians. Yeah. That, and you know, hey, you don't have to retaliate. Yeah. You don't have to be hopeless. Right. There's coming a day. The day of the Lord, I want to talk, remind me after this podcast, I want to talk to you about what that is. But the day of the Lord is coming where they're going to get what they deserve, yep. justice. And so there is comfort in that. Yeah. Just as there will be comfort in the guy yeah. who breaks into your house and and kills your family, he's going he to receive justice. Away. Yeah. He's, going, he's going to be caught. He's going to receive justice. Yeah. When, the, when the detective says that to you, hey, we will catch him, there is a level of comfort in the angst that comes yeah, to you for sure. that justice yeah. will be served. And the martyrs of Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're looking forward to the moment when their own martyrdom is avenged at the great day of wrath that will come, where it says just a few verses later, in that day, who can stand when the wrath of the Lamb falls? Hmm. So there's an encouragement that if I have been unjustly wronged, God will see to this. Yeah, he's not indifferent. In the him. end. Yeah. I might have to wait till then, but that will not go unseen. Yeah. yeah. It will be dealt with. I think, I think if we're honest, if we can just be intellectually honest here hmm. for the listener, the, the viewer, there's more comfort in God's just wrath <laughs> for the true sinner, which is not us, of course, the, the, than, than there is in God's true grace. And what I mean by that is you take Ted Bundy okay. for exa- as an example, yeah. or Jeffrey Dahmer, mm-hmm. brutalized, raped, cut apart. Jeffrey Dahmer ate 
dozens and dozens of, for Dahmer, young boys, for Bundy, girls. And yet both of them claim to have been covered by the graciousness of God. Like they claim to have trusted in Christ during their prison mm -hmm. stay, whether it was legitimate or not. But let's say it was legitimate. I would say that's more scandalous than all their families and even us. Like you watch the, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes and, and, mm -hmm. and the Ted Bundy interviews and you're like, I want this person to get what's coming. Yeah. Like we watch these shows on television or read a book and we're like, I, I want the white witch to die. Yeah. Like I want justice. And that moment mm -hmm. when she gets devoured her head. You're, you're like, you're, like, sat like you're satisfied in that moment. You're satisfied in that moment. And yeah. it's, and it's not like capricious. You're satisfied because just, just as sweet, we'll just as yeah. Just like when Gollum's and, falling and he lands in the lava. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. Evil Man, defeated. And so, <laughs> Hey, while it sounds harsh, <laughs> like sometimes I think grace is harder for us. If we're really not for us, like it is. I, of course I deserve There's grace. Or when Voldemort's right? destroyed. Um, yeah. You know, yes, there, yes, yeah. There and, too. But you're going, you're going grace sometimes is, is more scandalous and more difficult. If yeah. we're really honest, not for us or the people we love or the good people, but if we're really all bad people, if we're really all Voldemort or Gollum, yeah. The white witch, mm. Edmund in the story, Traitor. Then, then traitors, then um, justice is more satisfactory and even comforting at times. Um, and that's what makes grace so beautiful, but also so scandalous. Yeah. yeah. You know? And it, it honestly reminds me of, Amen. I don't remember the guy's name, but he said, we get to a place when we are preaching a Christ we do deserve and hell that we don't. Yeah. And so it's that reality when it's like, oh yeah, it makes sense that Christ would save me because whatever value you think you bring to him. And hell's for everybody else. Hell's yeah. for the outside people, the worst of sinners, the Dahmers, the Hitlers, and people on that lines. But when we come into this reality of the weight of sin, because I think a lot of this comes back to our view on sin and how sinful it actually is. Yeah. Before the eyes of God, we realize like, oh, none of us deserve this. Yeah. And all of us, even the mere fact that he allows us to continue breathing is a grace of him. And But by his grace, we can take comfort in that too. There's there's one more, oh, yeah. I think. Go for it. Uh, comfort in this. Well, I, comfort... I think comfort, but something that's going to make us perhaps uncomfortable is if we hear the doctrine of hell as it truly is, embrace it, there's something in us, if we're children of the Lord, that will mobilize us on mission to Definitely. reach the Definitely. lost. If this does yeah. not promote evangelism mm -hmm. oh, yeah. in missions, Definitely. we're doing hell wrong. Yeah. This ought to get us out. Definitely. With the message of Reality, grace. Yeah, the weight of it. Absolutely. If we know how horrible it is, an eternal inferno, it should break and burden the hearts of those who are no longer headed that direction yeah, for those who are. Well, well said. What do you think for hosting? I appreciate Indeed. being able to be here. you did great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, lost his hair. If you have questions, you can always <laughs> drop them in the comments. You can always email maddie at building28.com. We'd love to answer those for you or try to anyway. Appreciate you guys tuning in today. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of Odds. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. Out of Odds is produced by Building 28 Church and Podcast Royale. You can find out more about this show and Building 28 by visiting outofozpodcast.com. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can get each one automatically by subscribing in your favorite podcast app.